0: Hello everyone, I'm Ed Kemp and welcome to the Wide Open Road podcast series, where we share the stories of athlete career transition to life after sport. In this episode we feature David Parkin, one of VFL, AFL football's most iconic figures, who has a passion for ensuring professional sports men and women lead balanced lives, not just one-dimensional lives, focused purely on their sport. David's accomplishments as a football player and coach are legendary. They include captaining the Hawthorne Football Club to their second premiership in 1971 and then coaching them to a flag in 1978. He later coached Carlton Football Club to successive premierships in 1981-82, as well as taking them to the premiership again in 1995. He spent 24 years as a senior coach and 9 years as physical education advisor to the Hawthorne Football Club, and has a wealth of experience nurturing young people. David has also been an AFL commentator on ABC Radio, Radio 774 and Fox Sports, providing unique insights into the game of AFL. David's academic achievements are significant and include developing and lecturing in the sports coaching degree course at Deakin University. He also holds a Bachelor of Education from the University of Western Australia. A prolific writer, David has written and published more than a dozen books and numerous articles over the past 40 years. David's passion for education, young people and life is infectious and I started by asking him about his involvement with an AFL Players Association study that has found players with outside interests perform better on the field. And are more likely to engage better with their sport than players who focus solely on their sporting career. I asked whether these findings surprised him. I asked whether he thought AFL clubs and perhaps other sports have fully embraced the importance of balance in the lives of their players and how does he think balance helps players ultimately prepare for life after sport?
1: The last one I'll answer that first is that that's the one piece of research we haven't done and an organisation like the AFL that spends $1.5 $1.5 million each year trying to answer questions of that nature probably needs to set off down that pathway as well. I am, I am certain because of the history that I've had with players who do, do prepare themselves for life after. They, they do work placements or they study or they do their apprenticeship or they work in a community program during their football life. I think actually make the transition a little easier as difficult it is I think for all professional sports people who've had that as their major focus uh, do have a a degree of difficulty in in making the transition out but I think that's one piece of research that really needs to be done and I think will be in the not too distant future going back the step to there are two pieces of research that have been completed now one by the AFL Research Board and the other by the AFL-PA, which to me clearly show, not huge numbers in the research, but the figures are very, very, in my opinion, convincing that we have, in the first instance, every AFL player is asked each year by the players association by the union to validate how well their club in this last 12 months has developed them first as a footballer and secondly as a person and that's not really shared with um, that is all the club's results are not shared with each other but each club gets a clear picture of from that research of how their players rate them at this particular time. And what's been, and it's not well known, and I'm not sure that I should be giving all of these details, but the the reality is that the clubs who have dominated that particular research, that their players have seen them as good servants in developing them firstly for their football and secondly as individual people, the same three clubs that have dominated the competition for the last three years, you can work those out, that's Geelong, Hawthorne and Sydney, have been clearly above the rest of the competition. And, and why do you think that is?
0: Because it to me it seems counterintuitive that uh, you've got three clubs that are really successful at the top and other clubs may do a modicum of, of what they do, yet generally football is a bit of a follower. You know, one club does a, a Pagan's Paddock or whatever, the next minute everybody's doing it. Why do you think that other clubs may not be as advanced? or Is that because they're not throwing resources at it or do you think they're not quite sure of the value of it?
1: Exactly. Well, you're smart enough to understand that the three clubs, one of whom, Geelong, were employing three full-time people in welfare, not to do with their football. The other two, Sydney and Hawthorne, were employing two people. They're the only three clubs that had significant numbers employed in the area of welfare in the big picture stuff. The clubs that have 0.5 of a person or nobody or 1.5 people who are employed are finishing in the bottom four of that particular um, piece of research. So... I think it's about resources and, of course, we've now got a soft salary cap and the most difficult thing to cover in salary cap, of course, is people's salaries, so the people who are least likely to be appointed are those who aren't directly related to football. But as this research gets out, um, we think, I think, that um, clubs will realise, because of the relationships, and that's the other half of um, the research, um the research by the AFL Research Board showed clearly that players who do focus on a work placement or study, might be university level, or an apprenticeship or work in a community program or do song and dance like Shane Crawford did, uh, if they in fact have a sincere commitment in time and effort to these things... They have shown to be almost in all instances um, better footballers. That is, their performance is better.
0: And the one thing that that comes out of that conversation or that comment there is is commitment and the and the fact that footballers are very committed at their at their profession. But to my mind, it seems that it's pretty simple for them to then hopefully be able to switch off on their days off. I mean, you would agree that footballers have a lot of idle time and they they waste a lot of it. I mean, what are the types of things that you've seen, maybe players that you've coached and people that you've been involved with over the years where they've actually been proactive to get out there and whether it's to talk with a board member from a football club or an administrator that might be able to point them in the right path, there must be many, many stories of people behind the scenes helping people, helping players um, identify things that they might do when they finish.
1: And you're absolutely right. In, if they're half serious and half smart... They're amongst uh, people who become wonderful resources and connections to the next, if you like, part of their life. And when it happens during, it's amazing, when it happens during their careers, these bonds or friendships or relationships provide the venue or the opportunity for them to do exactly what you say. And that happens much more often uh, than people recognise, where clubs are genuinely, and particularly when they've got someone who's employed to develop the person down another pathway, they have connections within football clubs. Imagine where I worked at the Carlton Football Club. I mean, it was just unbelievably supportive for anybody who showed some initiative, some interest and some ability to get an opportunity to say, well look, I'm gonna have a crack at this, it may or be may or may not be what I want to follow after I finish football. And I'd known players, you know, Mark McClure at his time would have had three or four opportunities in the sort of decade that I was with him until he found through one of those opportunities a lifetime out of football. Um Valvoline is the company. Is now his Victorian and uh, Victorian and Tasmanian sales manager, of Valvoline, which came out of a connection made whilst he was playing, and that could be repeated thousands, thousands of times. Of
0: time. And I mean, I mentor a couple of professional sports people on the side, just just as a as a way to hopefully contribute in some some small way to their ongoing success as people. And the things that really surprise me is the fact that not all of them twig with the fact that there is significant amount of resources and influence within all sorts of sporting organisations that they don't seem to leverage. And then as they're coming to the end, uh, or they may have come to the end, they sort of put the call in and you know people have kind of moved on from them because there's a whole group of other young men and women coming through the sporting systems that like, they're involved in.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I'm, and I'm not sure how... Okay, they're young, and, and the focus is to make it. We we, you know, I had this argument with Neil Craig. over I love Neil. Neil over a long period of time said, so, "Well, these young blokes coming in at 18, we'll say, have three years probably to make it, and they ought to come along, and football should be there. may well their only focus for three years." But what happens if they f- finish after two yeah, years? Well, that's that, 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 that is my argument. With him over that, but but also the other argument is if they are actually doing something at the same time, even though they're in their infancy or apprenticeship in their football they're actually going to do the football better and this is the this is the basic argument: more football is not better, more is not better in in, in most things in life, and if the balance isn't there particularly if you get an injury or your form is not good, you have nothing else to focus on other than what's not happening in your life, that's a disaster. We talk about mental mental problems and breakdowns and, and mental illness for people. Well, there's a certainty with somebody with supposed talent in an area for reasons sometimes outside themselves they're being, it's been aborted in some way and they have nothing to get their head out of that space. And know? I
0: mean, that must be a massive worry for a coach. And we every, we know that you've spent a lifetime basically espousing the, the, the virtues of, of balance and d- doing other things. And the one thing that I often speak to younger people about is that go out and find out what you don't like, but the only thing you can do to find it out is to go and do it. And then you want to try and cross off as many things you don't like as possible as quickly as you can so you can actually find out what you do like because life's pretty bloody miserable if you spend 40 years doing something you're not particularly fond of and that example about mark mcclure is terrific in the sense that he went and tried a few things and found his niche and if you think about ability of people on the field i don't think enough sports people give themselves credit when it comes to transferable schools whether it be you know, focusing on high performance, sacrifice, commitment, all of those sorts of things that are, are, are well-versed in the sporting vernacular. I mean, what are the sorts of things that, you know, you could talk to, you know, a prospective professional footballer, cricketer, whoever, who's starting to transition out and the things that they can actually bring to another organisation completely unrelated to sport?
1: Well, yeah, isn't it that understanding, particularly now, we've had fabulous examples in um, in the AFL over the last three or four years. We've had four clubs win premierships uh, using basically four different methods. Not dramatically different, but have varied the method to do it. Um, I have been delighted with the um, change of culture within footy club where players are now encouraged to... Have a laugh and to enjoy themselves and the seriousness. I, I could imagine somebody telling a joke during my my training session. I would have sacked them on the spot. You know, someone going out in the in the warm up prior to the game, and I've seen them laughing. I'd have had the run runner out to them before they even started well, saying. So.
0: Cochin before the prelim and before the grand final last year was joking with his players, and and you think about it, and someone who's coming from from a different era, you probably thought, gee. I wouldn't be doing that then, but clearly it worked.
1: Oh, and and they've developed a culture where that is almost expected now, and that is fantastic to see. When you encourage, I'm becoming my grandchildren, encourage them into the game, maybe to play at that level, and and you and you find that the environment which they're going into now is a much more balanced environment. I think we've, you know, I think we've made some, you know, quite dramatic changes. But whether we've got coaches convinced to change their schedules and to enable people to go and find out what they like or don't like or what they're good at or not good at. Um, I don't know that we've reached that stage. I'm not sure that every coach in the AFL is convinced that more is not better.
0: And that's interesting because in the study that Matthew Pink did, which you've been involved with, and he said getting ready for life after football, the findings, there was an obvious positive for players, but previously there had been concerns that, you know, this might be a negative distraction to footy. And the thing that surprises me most about this whole subject is that there's irrefutable evidence that balance helps people focus on certain tasks for a certain period of time and get better results, yet there's this massive swell of, well, no, if you want to get be a better footballer, you've got to kick more balls, you've got to mark more balls, you've got to handball more balls, when in actual fact, having a day or two off every now and then probably wouldn't hurt you.
1: And Ed, you know better than I, I mean, I'm, I've been protected from the real world in lots of ways, but I would have thought that that's a transferable fact in most people who focus on something which they may, may be good at, to the detriment of lots of things like relationships, like family, like uh, their own physical welfare, etc., has ex- exactly the same effects in different environments. And if we we we've been pretty slow to learn, I think, uh, in Western society, particularly in the cultures that you and I happen to grow up in, that um, and you know always because I, I I actually never went full time. I you know, was probably the only coach that would, they all turned professional in about 1990, and all the coaches went full time. And I just I resisted it for the last decade, and it was hard to do because there was a an expectation you wouldn't but I I love my other involvement my educational involvement and I knew that that got my head out of all the nonsense that went on on a daily basis in the football.
0: Do you reckon that made you a better coach, and a better manager well, of people and and the, the whole environment of a football club?
1: Yeah, I'm not about a better coach but certainly my relationship stuff was far better. Now I stuffed up my own, you know, family relationships because I spent so much time with that other family, the football family, and probably neglected my own kids and wife, etc. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't, you know, speaking. down it? wasn't walking the walk myself in my own life. But it, there is no doubt. Uh, initially, the university refused to let me go. full to, uh, let me go into football as a coach. Full stop. Fortunately, the principal changed a couple of years later and thought it might have been a good idea to have. Um, David Park and working, working in, in the AFL in terms of marketing their products, et cetera, which may or may not be. I couldn't answer that question. Uh, it was funny how there was a resistance and all of a sudden that changed. I've got no doubt that I was better in that pr- pretty demanding job because I had something else that, to go to. Oh, and it took, it, it took my because it was a a, a serious job, Um, I think it was a serious job. My my education when I was teaching primary, secondary or as I ended up doing for 40 years tertiary, um, it it took a a real focus in terms of preparation and performance there to do the job in the way it was expected. Pretty demanding when you're doing four or five hours sleep a night for 28 years. It's not good for the body and I'm probably... I'm now the consequence of all You don't look too
0: bad, David, but you mentioned a phrase all-encompassing. And the thing that really concerns me about the way that professional sport is moving now is that it is becoming all-encompassing. People are getting paid more, whether it's players, administrators, coaches, they're all getting paid more. So to a certain extent, there'd be an expectation that, well, if they're being paid more, they've got to do more. And that says to me that whilst there's irrefutable evidence through studies that you've been involved in that balance helps on the field and off the field moving forward, yet it also says to me that there's a, a potential issue where there's ex- there's an expectation to do more to the exclusion of everything else. And to my mind, that seems completely counterintuitive to any argument you could possibly put to say that balance isn't a good thing.
1: And Ed, and if you're paying them a huge amount of money, which these people are receiving in a sense, um, you probably read, like most of us, that, and it's only a short time ago 62% of american footballers who are probably just about the highest paid athletes in the world they're all broke uh, within, a, within de- a decade within a decade of finishing their playing careers are bankrupt now that to me there's something basically wrong with the system that allows that to happen where I don't know I can't I don't know it well enough to point the bone at who or what but that is an absolute tragedy in terms of life you know for people well and i think
0: the thing that if if we fast forward maybe 15 or 20 years to when the the salaries are never going to be comparable to what they are in the states i mean the 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 numbers there are outrageous but the thing is is that if you if you fast forward 20 years what concerns me is there is going to be a, a an underclass of retired sports men and women and the and the the rate of change within the women's professional sporting area suggests that maybe not in, in, in our lifetimes, but not so, pretty soon afterwards they'll be getting paid as well or comparably as the men, that we'll have a whole bunch of athletes that come out of their sports with not a great deal of skills, either a lot of money that they blow or a lifestyle that they can no longer afford. And as a, as a parent of four children, that, that frightens the hell out of me purely because as parents of, of, of elite sports people, they must be worried that what's going to happen to them if they don't get themselves organised for life after sport well and truly before they finish.
1: I I have no argument, but Ed, you and I think the same and sense and feel the same and can predict, we think fairly confidently, about the future. And yet there are a lot of, um, what's the word, not silent foes, but a fair bit of opposition to this basic charm. I would have thought now... We would have had a a complete somersault you know we're into the professional business which happened during my i mean the game has gone through massive change. I can't recognize any elements of the game as it was twenty years ago our our game of australian football and
0: on that point, do you think that players are better now, and I'm talking about skills and better footballers than they were? when you played and when you coached and the reason I ask that question is getting back to the fact that I hear now that players are basically spending 40 hours a week at the club I could imagine when you were playing and when you were coaching in the early days they might have spent 10 hours a week at the club because they were working I don't know whether they've necessarily got any better at the basic skills probably have grounds are better they're probably fitter and stronger but is more better and you'd have to say that maybe it ain't
1: I think you've got a good argument. And when I sat with three, probably shouldn't name it, three slow inside footballers at the Hawthorne Football Club not all that long ago, and they brought the subject up. We're talking about enjoying the game. You know, their ability to go out and play, play the game, with un, without restriction of method, position, role, which has been coached directed, and they were three outstanding players, all of whom one's left playing at Melbourne Lewis and the other two, oh, Hodgie's playing at Brisbane and Sam's retired. But I I was amazed, and they brought it up, not me. I'm pleased to have had it sort of argued in front of me. They were saying, well, we now average, I think at the time, 92 stoppages in the game where there's a ball up or a throw in. You can imagine Parco going to those stoppages and having a predetermined starting position. Who do we go and stand next to or what what position do we start? That's been predirected. And then from that point, the role to play or what my job is, which might have naught to do with actually going and getting the ball and doing something with it. Would you like to consider for us how the joy of chasing the ball and getting it and doing something constructive with it has been reduced by coach intervention. And I thought, heavens, I never even thought about it from that point of view. But, you know, that, that would, wouldn't really be detrimental in terms of the fun, whatever fun is for AFL footballers of playing that game.
0: Well, I mean, I've, I've heard the comment and I've actually had the comment said to me a number of times where players are falling out of love with footy because footy's no longer a recreation, it's actually a job. And we all know that sometimes you don't have a shitty day at a job. And, and interestingly, an article I read in preparation for today was by Caroline Wilson back in 2013, where she quoted you as saying, football is a massive billion-dollar business, but it's still a sport. It's still a game. And former AFL chairman Mike Fitzpatrick suggested that the, he would find the modern life of a footballer or the life of a modern footballer very dull how you've played in the amateur era, both of you and, you, and you've straddled both with amateur to professional. And I mean, I guess you probably almost played football on the side when you first started playing. Um, do you think that, that there's, a, there's a problem that because of this whole issue of uh, structure and almost they become like robots, that if they're not tuned like that as individuals, they're going to find it very, very difficult to enjoy the game. And if they're in it for a long period of time, they might come out of it a of a lot worse off than when they went
1: in. I think you've got a, a very strong argument. And you think how early this is being done. That is, their system is now getting them at 15 or 16 or 17 and preparing them for a game which is totally different to the Oz kick of chase the ball, have a bit of fun, yep. kick around, do what do what you like. They're already being regimented in terms of method and routine and tactics and str- strategical places, et cetera, which impact on their ability just to enjoy, as I say, chase the ball, get it, and make a decision and do something with it. And I, and I, I, I don't know how we can go. I don't think they go backwards from here, but how we can change. And the league have been very good. I, I went, I, I was. I'd have to say, pleasantly surprised. I was, I think, in the last, I think they had 32 workshops. I was one of 29 in a workshop, which was run by um, Stephen Hocking and the the sports scientist, the goal kicker from uh, Podziadly. Um, They ran with people around the table, there were ex cases Stan Els and I were there, there were ex-players, there were administrators, there were supporters of clubs, there were media people around the table, and they had an open discussion about what the uh, Commission had been talking around the rules and what needed to be changed. I think there were about 17 of them at that time, and I must admit, I, I was delighted and I'd had never met Stephen I didn't know him from a bar of soap, but heard a lot about him. Um, I thought his collective wisdom around the problems that you are just talking about, where the game is going and how people who watch it, whether they do it at the game or in television, how those who play it, um, how those who umpire it, are going to enjoy the participation of something that we've, we just took for granted over a long period of time. And I was delighted to think that they were concerned about where the game had got to and where it probably needs to go for exactly what you've brought up, for those who are attached to the game in whatever role or position, whatever you like to call it, um, have the same joy in their participation that we think we enjoyed in a time where it was played and umpired and coached differently
0: one of the things that i think about a lot with young children and i have no well i'm not sure whether they're going to end up professional sports people that's they're a bit young for that at the moment but you mentioned about the fact that you know at 15 16 17 they are getting pulled into a system where it's very rigid it's very structured and there's no almost what i call creativity to of thought and i mean we're going to get off track a fraction for a minute or two The draft age. I've a very simple view that they shouldn't be able to be drafted until they're twenty, and that's because right when they're in the middle of the most important part of their educational life to that point in their lives, they've got pressures with will I or will I not get drafted, and you've got they're sitting HSC, and it seems to me that that is just an outrageous proposition for for a, a an immature teenager to go through whilst they're in the process of the most important part of their schooling life.
1: Oh, again, I'm totally on the same page that you are. And I'm not sure whether it's because we've had 15 and 16-year-olds play the game successfully somewhere in the past and therefore to prevent a player with talent coming into the system is going to end up in a court somewhere. So yeah. it's going to, they're going to be a restraint of trade. And I think they're worried about that because they lost both the restraints of trades that... Uh, that came up in previous decades or previous times before. So there'll be some argument put up like that. But I think for the loss of a couple, a few along the way in those uh, years that you're talking about from 15 through to 20, um, I think for the good that will do the game and the people, all of them, for the few that it might slow down or prevent or dent or whatever you like to call it, I have no doubt that we should should, uh, lift the draft age. I've got no doubt at all.
0: I mean, I think it's there's not that many examples, but the ability for someone to come in at at 21 or 22 when they're fully mature, uh, they're probably going to get up and running quicker, even though the players these days, the young guys, seem to be very well prepared. Most of mm. the top, let's call it 40 or so draft picks are ready to pretty much go straight into a team. But I just look at all of the pressures that I see on kids to perform at school to have the additional pressure of, Will I or won't I get drafted, especially if you're one of those ones that may be in the bottom 25% mm. of the draft? It just seems to me to be an unbelievable pressure that they're probably not equipped to, 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 to really handle. And
1: mostly they go they go uh, push the studies aside so they'll come back to those or whatever the priority of anybody sees in them the talent. And I've got a young bloke who's uh, under 18. Recruiting manager for Port Adelaide, and when I hear the discussion uh, when they go into family situations with the boys, etc., it's one of the more difficult things for parents to cop, because they're thinking just like you are as a good caring parent. They're thinking about, well, what if he doesn't make it, or. What, what about life after and what about the things he should be doing in terms of his educational basis? There's no doubt in my mind we we should be doing that, but um, it's not happening. It's one of the criticisms that we've not dealt with, I don't think, in a very, very uh, professional way. That's AFL. Um, it's come up often, but it's never got through the commission.
0: Uh, it, it, it's a it, To my mind, it's a huge issue that mm. may get worse before it gets better. Mentors are a really interesting topic and I know through your uh, through the book that you're involved with perform or else uh, there was a chapter dedicated to one of your great mentors John Kennedy the value of mentors for young people as they're working their way through a professional sporting system I would imagine would be something that you would you would absolutely support what have you sort of seen over the course of your experience in and around AFL and, and potentially other sports where mentors from com- the, the ones that I think are, are really helpful, are the ones that are completely removed from the club or the organisation, where a young person can sit down and talk to them about a whole range of issues that they know they're not going to get back to the club and they can, if you like, you know, express their vulnerabilities and the things that might be really concerning them. I mean, how important have mentors been to you and importantly, how important have mentors been to some of the people that you may have come across in your in your coaching and playing career? I,
1: I think in so many cases, Ed, the, the mentor has often been, as in my case, was the difference between actually succeeding what we were doing or actually failing. Um, John Kennedy was a wonderful person and, a, and, and my coach, but I, I didn't have a – I think he spent more time when I was finished as a player um, – in the kind of discussions you're talking about, when I was going or thinking about going, or he was thinking about me going down the coaching pathway. But I've had five or six. So, I've got Paul Burke, who I've written a number of books with, and probably the only one still alive of my mentors. You've that, outlasted them all. Outlasted know, all older people, and and it's interesting because it, sometimes, um, and it's probably the best way is that you. Have a kinship with somebody, and and you are. I've not heard of anybody who's ever knocked back a young person, male or female, who sees something in them that they think would be helpful. It's a good boost to
0: the ego when oh, someone Yeah,
1: well, I I've never knocked people back. Yeah, you know, yeah, I just do it if I have the time and the energy, and it's possible to do it. You're you're right. Ed. It's, um, but I have one Ken Herbert. Who um who who sort of chose me? It's funny he he came into my life and started to impact on it because he could he didn't have any boys he had uh, one girl and uh, Don Scott and I happened to be the two people that he chose to take a real interest in. This is a bloke you wouldn't know as a multi-millionaire. We didn't have any idea about that. He um, started the first licensed grocery. Um, in Victoria, he baked illegally bread on a Sunday until they changed the law. So he um he was, and he was as tough as nails. He was a rear gunner in the Lancasters in the Second World War and had lost his hearing, so he could only lip read us, and we mostly wrote letters. I've kept all his letters, etc. And if you can, I'm am saying this as a, as a, and he was the one that could give it to me like nobody else. You know, but, but the, the,
0: the way you're talking. I mean, he obviously had a massive impact on your life and he was someone that was, I'm assuming, not involved with football.
1: No, no. In fact, he was. Well, he, he was. He came. He became the first, I think, full-time development officer at the Hawthorne Footy Club, so he did. played district cricket and league football at 16 and then the war came and that finished his, basically finished his career. So he was associated, but he helped me more in what you were calling non-football parts of my life, you know, helped me with investments and took a, an interest in, in, in that sort of stuff. Um, if And in, in people are a bit low. People are ang- uh, get very anxious about going and asking someone who they admire from a distance, uh, who might be a perfect person as you call a mentor. I call him a critical friend. Somebody who knows and loves you but can give it, can give it to you in the way that uh, probably well, parents sometimes can, I suppose, but others in a position, say a coach or something, can't do it. And, and Paul Burke, you know, Paul, I sacked Paul. He came from Bendigo, as one of those great, good players. We were a team that was on top and doing very well. He couldn't get a game and I'd sacked him after two years. And uh, it was terrible. As I was only go. but then he he came to me for help to get him a place at the university, and he took me on his journey with with the company that he went to work for, and uh, I travelled the world with him, and I and we were we were being influenced by his management and stuff that they were doing in particularly in the team space in the workplace, um, and he was taking stuff that we were doing in a football sense, you know, in terms of giving ownership and doing all that sort of stuff. It came off the back of the work with him. So to have someone like that, and he was out of football in a sense that you talked before, somebody totally excluded from Carton Barricka and, you know, interested in footy but not actually working there, which gave him a, um, a, you know, an unbiased view of things. He did my review, the review we needed to do he came in and did that as an outside person so
0: well this unbiased review is and the ability to be a critical friend i think is really an important point myself and three other friends developed a, a mentoring program called the end game and we ran a pilot program with 10 athletes from all different sports irrefutably the, the the feedback from the athletes that did it was was fantastic and they got a lot out of it because we would sit down and uh we, we basically found a group of very successful people in their own right in a range of different pursuits who were prepared and happy to help. And essentially we had a 12-month program where they, every month, a couple of hours you would go through and, and simply talk about the things mm. that these individuals might want to do. Now, the majority of them are now at, have, have gone through that program and they're out doing other things and getting on with their lives. But it's really interesting that the individual that I spent a year with former professional rugby player came back to me and said the fact that you didn't know me intimately allowed you to be really critical and me not to be particularly upset by the fact that you were being critical and this individual made a decision to move on from sport and now is you know is well on his way to being very successful off the field and I just worry that not enough people to your point before have the courage to go and ask because I can bet you 99.9% ninety nine point nine percent of them will be delighted that they've been asked and even be more delighted to hopefully help them
1: i again i know I know argument but it's not i don't know why that's not promoted ed in the way that um you and I have been on the I've been on both ends i suppose but being mentored was absolutely significant in my life when I think of the you know paul's influence particularly in the leadership stuff where we had the courage and the finish to actually, and I was the most dictatorial autocratic prick that ever walked the face of the earth, and I, I understand that. But for then me to, unders- to to be educated and understand that this time, you know, leadership is situational specific. We had 15 of the most experienced, committed and competent uh, athletes probably in any football club in the history of the game and it was obvious to everybody other than me that it was time to to let go. To let go, and I'd never let go of anything in my life. But I was going to lose my job if I didn't.
0: How and how difficult was that for you to actually oh. a, a listen to and b go? I've actually got to do it.
1: Well, I, I, I couldn't, to be truthful. I mean, I, I, I he, he came up with the idea. and I said, "Oh, I'm not going to let the the, the lunatics run the asylum. That's not going to happen, you know. And I, I know they met in my office because my office was a meeting room as well with a desk in the corner. And um, I came to meet for the first time. And Anthony Stewart, who was the psychologist who uh, who ran the program, said, no, oh, you can't stay in here. And I said, no, no, I won't interfere. I just, I need to know what's going on. You know, I couldn't let go. He said, no, no, no. A, you, you, you'll interfere. And B, they won't open up while you're here. So I'm, for two very good reasons you're going. Well, I, I, can, I remember it's the hardest steps I've ever made in my life was to get to the door. In fact, I closed the door and I fell back against the door, thinking, "What is going on here?" And then I could actually hear them. So I thought, "Here's a chance. I'll just stand here and listen to what's going on." You know. <laughs> and then a couple of people came. I said, came "What are down you doing?" "The corridor." "What am I doing?" So I had to, to walk away. The, yeah, that's a really interesting question because it was the, most, the when I think of my life in those sorts of roles, the most difficult thing was to. And that group in the finish probably interesting for people. That group in the finish decided who would play, so the group actually picked the team. They selected the team in nineteen ninety five every week. They decided how we would play.
0: Yeah, so what did you do?
1: Well, I didn't do anything. I, I was part of it and facilitated it, but I I didn't. I hardly ever had. To say, well, you might think, but we're doing, I can't remember once to be truthful, where it was a selection over a player or a method we we're going to do to play against a particular team at the time. They understood what was required better than any of us, the three or four coaches.
0: So, does that mean that that was the start of your personal transition away from football yep. from the point of view of full, well, yep. not full time because you said you were never no, full time, no, but, 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 but being ensconced in it? Yep. And how did you cope? As you, as you, when you when you left football, because you had plenty of other things to go to.
1: Well, I think that's probably right. I, I missed it, but I was proud that you know, John Kennedy gave me his job. He transitioned me into the job. I did it for one year in 76. As assistant, we won the premiership. John handed me his job in a car park in Kew in the pre-season, put his hand on my shoulder. He said, oh, by the way they'll be announcing you as the Hawthorne football coach tomorrow. Well, you know, when, I mean, I had no idea that was going to happen. I was given a job. No interview, no nothing from the football club. Here's the previous coach. Well, I was able to do almost the same thing for Wayne Britton for the three years. My last three is going to be the years they'll be... 90, what, seven, 98, eight, 99, nine two thousand probably In the last three years wayne was doing a lot and he he was fantastic he worked hard i just sort of was
0: there and as you as you pre- transitioned out of of the coaching role to go and do other things the fact that you were educated a teacher and an educator yourself you would have i'm assuming or you might may say something differently but that you had things organized or you had other things that you could go and do that you were interested in, which would maybe not fill the void of football, but certainly take a lot of, a lot of the enjoy, give you a lot of enjoyment in other parts of your life.
1: Ed, I, I made a, because um, to, to, I need to be doing things. If I didn't, I'd stay in bed and read. I love reading. So I'd do that all day if I didn't have to do. So I became the ambassador and patron of 12 different foundations. That in my transfer out to give me a reason for being, to make a difference in, in, um, in the world that I live in, to get affirmation for being a decent sort of a cut person, all that sort of stuff, um, and that, that basically fulfilled, I'm back to about eight or nine now, uh, that basically filled the time void, if you like, or the challenge or the involvement. I started a group called Gox, gentlemen of Kokoda. We walk Kokoda and we've walked somewhere in the world every year since. We've started th- another thing called the Mailbag Foundation, which is I'm a prostate cancer survivor, so we put 30 blokes who stupidly ride postage motorbikes all around Australia. We've just gone over the million dollar mark after five years uh, doing it. So that's me, and I love the the team bit. I love the group the group situation, etc. and, and I've been able to replace that very important part of my life by doing similar things, if you like, with other groups of people, with a an end product that. But makes with the different. same
0: mentality of being being in a team and being focused on on one goal, whatever that goal might be. Exactly. You mentioned before reason for being, and the thing that is, to my mind, one of the most important things that a person can do is make sure that every time they get out of bed, they're actually getting out of bed for a reason, and they're. They're they're getting out of bed because they're they're confident and worthy of whatever pursuit that that they're going down. And this whole issue of transition concerns me because not enough professional sporting people are getting themselves organised early enough to actually know what that reason for being is once the siren stops or the whistle blows and they no longer go to training every day and they're no longer preparing. And one of the things that you also mentioned about is charity and not-for-profit work. There are thousands of not-for-profit organisations across Australia. In fact, I think there's about five hundred thousand of them, and th- they would be screaming out for the quality of individuals that are coming through all sorts of professional sporting systems, and whether there's a way where sport can help integrate some of these organisations, maybe that aren't the, the you know the, the what I call the A-grade names, but the ones that need resources and need people to go and do things to help others.
1: And I think it's happening. Think that I'm amazed the number of players who have seen fit to probably been asked didn't go and chase, but someone's come to them and said, "Do you have the time and energy and and capacity to assist us with this?" I, I, I did a group session with the next coach approach uh, um, a course which David Whedon runs. I was out last night and Simo was there from Carlton. And this funny you say that because I had this, he came to me and I've known him on the way through, love him as a person. He's a very special bloke. What he's been able to do with the skinny body he's done and the way that he's done it, I admire him enormously. But a really good person, great values, great uh, behaviours. He's, he's just an outstanding person and has just got to that position now. He's jumped on board because he thinks that... You know football's been his life, but he thinks he can make a contribution now by which he two years ago Had a conversation wasn't even entering his head now. He's come to me saying I think I I want to do this And I think I can be good at it. And and this is that's almost a You know 180 change if you like I I think the
0: thing is is that this is the point that we made before Go out and do a few things and get out of your comfort zone if you like. Yep. And see if you're good at it. Yep. You might surprise yourself. Yep. You know, you might surprise yourself that you can kick on the right foot, but well, you might surprise yourself that you can actually go and contribute to an organisation, whether it be a, a for profit or a not for profit, and make a real impact outside of the of your what I'd call your day job. Mm. Mm. No, I think I think that that's and Daniel Jackson is probably the one that comes to mind. Now, I know that I've never met Daniel, but when he started his journey outside of football. It became very clear very quickly that he was a person that had lots more to give and he, he, he may have worked outside. Well, I know he did work outside of football while he was in it to probably help find exactly what he was going to do and now he's contributing in all sorts of ways to making other people's lives better.
1: Yeah, the point is I, I sat with every one of my players every six months of their lives away from the footy club Asking them, you know, that's, you're right. It's just they need to be provoked, if you like. Why are you here? Where are you going? And how are you going to get there? And was it was a con- and the number of players, and this has put players well into their careers in their early twenties who had talent, etc., who who didn't understand at all what their drivers were, what really does other than yeah the footy bit, nothing else. In the world, have they considered that might be worthwhile pursuing, not just for now, but as you suggest for the later on? Did that Did that
0: surprise you? Oh, it
1: did, it did surprise me because I thought they were often so good at what they were doing here. They would be people that had a, a you know a good, strong, broad picture of the world, where they were in it and where they might want to go. Oh, and and it it, it really worried me. Then I continued to do it. To force the issue, I said, "Why well, can't I? I'm not playing you. If you don't know who you are and what's important to you, I want to play people who are here for the right reasons. I'm I'm not interested in you if you're not interested in, in yourself enough to know what you what your drivers are." And it's a, it's a really interesting debate. I do. Did, it did with students a bit too. The number of students who come in and start courses at they're Euros, on autopilot, They don't know why they're there. Got no idea why they're. Now, your argument's good in that, well, that's okay. Let's well, come to crack at it and uh, we'll find out we don't like it and we'll go. And the best students that I've had, postgraduate, undergraduate students, are those who um, have gone off and tried a lot of things, pulled out of their course after they started, um, come back at 30 years of age or whatever, and they become the best students in terms of their... Undergraduate or graduate work in completing a terrific qualification, which takes them down the road that they finally decide they want to go.
0: The funny thing is, is that I had a conversation with a, a football, uh, an AFL player last night, and I said, "It's never too late." You know, Sean Beatty, a very good yes, friend of yeah, mine, yeah, yeah. and Beats decided he wanted to be a teacher when he was probably late thirties, early forties, and now he's loving it. That's and, great, which is fantastic, yeah. and and I think that. The ability for people to, as I said before, discount what you don't like, get that out of your system, and then go and focus on what you do like, makes for a much more, a much happier life and a much more fulfilled life. And this whole issue of holistic development. And I suspect that when you pushed your players to say, "Well, what are you here for? Why are you here? Where are you going?" All of those types of questions, did that help them become better people and better players? because they were now looking at things slightly differently? Or, or did you actually see it, see a change
1: no, in that? God, No, I, I saw an improvement in their football when they went from a person who was um, single-minded about this avenue of interest and involvement... So one-dimensional. One-dimensional one, into, into other things. But I, we had a... Um, on, on one of the rides, we went, we went through Bendigo, and I, as a fundraiser, I asked the 16 or 17 players who I'd recruited from Bendigo... To have a Blue Boys back to Benego night. Didn't pay them, said, I'd really like you to come and be a part of this. Well, the whinge and a whine. Every one of them turned up. They all turned up, got their own way to Benego, had to stay overnight. And Cole Kinnear interviewed them about their football at Carlton. Not one player talked anything about my ability to coach or the game plan or whatever they did, they all told a story. It was for Michael Sexton started off, so it was good. He sort of set the tone, but they all told a story about the conversation that I'd had with them and the pathway other than football that they'd chosen to go down as a result of that conversation. It was one of the most, what's the word, um, fulfilling or satisfying or enlightening uh, view of my own uh, understanding about these things, that they were now all of them were doing something in their lives uh, now this is years later, this is like fifteen or twenty years later uh, that was started by that conversation about what are you doing with your life
0: and that that says to me that and look i don 't know the the inner workings of a football club these days enough to know how much time or how time poor coaches are. With respect to be able to spending quality time with each individual player, on the list, what, forty-five players or whatever it is. But I I sense that, you know, we need to learn from the past about making the future better, which is mandating this type these type of conversations to be had within the realms of sporting organisations, so when they do go, they've got a sense of purpose, they've got a sense of direction, and they can transition what I call to something, not from something. Sport.
1: Yeah, great, great, great philosophy. And look, it's um, yeah, it's it's very interesting. To me. I'm not sure how much. Time. I mean, there were, I think, even at the senior level, there were 14. So, I was saying yesterday, because he wants to go down. I think that pathway. There were 14 full time coaches at the Carlton Footy Club. So there ought to be plenty of time for one on one with a person responsible. I did a program for Fox um, where I interviewed what was called the Clerks and Graduates or something it was called, and it were the five or six coaches that had come through. What's us say
0: Hardwick, Simpson.
1: Bolton. Bolton, those guys. Up, yep. Yeah. Um, and I had the chance, and I asked, was. Oh, I'm not a very good, you're a good interviewer, I'm not very good, but I. to start off, I said to each of them, how would you describe your role to a non-AFL person? And we just about got the same in very similar words, ah, oh, well, it's really about building a good relationship with about 100 people, 50 of them who are actually out there, part 47, whatever it is, 50 of them are actually out there playing and another 50 who have employed to service their needs. That's the job. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Um, pretty easy thing to build a good relationship with 100 people, Bloody tough, I would have thought. Impossible. And they all, they all said, no, you can't do that. I have 10, they all have 10, and we cover the 100. So I can build with the time available, etc. and if time's, in essence, one of the major inputs is having time with the person, you can't do it with 100. We can do it with 10. And so we, have, we build up a small group of 10 or 12 or 15 with each of those people, and we try and build a relationship with them. And I thought, that's yeah, well relationship building. You know, what 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 what's relationship building about? Well, it's about time spending time and care and interest. I mean, talk about culture, cultures I get this right. Cultus is the Latin word for culture, which means care. And it is about relationships are about caring, which means that you're doing things that hurt you in time or effort or both to assist this person to achieve what they want. And we're starting to wonder, I think that's one of the better parts of of AFL football now that we're actually starting to understand that, and they're genuinely getting some. We've had some coach changes too, like Nathan Buckley's change. And you know, Nathan's been. I cannot believe that Nathan's now finally worked out. There's a thing called grey between black and white, and he was going to be like all the other great players who you know I can count on one hand. The great players have become half reasonable coaches because they. Don't have any empathy with the people who, like me, can't really do it. We struggle <laughs> to do it, all, you know. So you, you, you know, it's it's been fantastic for me to to see a guy who played his football in a particular way, started to coach in a particular way, got rid of people that were outside the norm and weren't. They couldn't cope with that. Is now understanding that his role is about building relationship with all people who have all got difficulties, problems who can't and can and do sometimes and don't other times, and being able to cope with that and build what I call a really good working relationship with them. I think Bucks is going to be an outstanding coach now.
0: I've been always been a massive fan of him, uh, especially over the last couple of years because he's clearly come to the realisation that he, he can't do it on his own mm. and he needs to surround himself with good people. And, and I suppose most coaches, maybe in your experience, haven't aren't great delegators because... They want to do it all because they think that you know maybe there's their way's best and all the other things. You mentioned the word care. I don't care whether it's uh, in a footy club or in a workplace environment. You'll get a lot out of people if you show as a leader that you care for them and that you are interested in them. And I think getting back to the mentoring side of things, if mentors uh, show care and show some and provide some time, that that will give professional sports people and others who might be struggling with the next phase of their lives, the confidence to know, well, this one person's in my corner, there'll be plenty of others that are noted in their corner as well, and over the course of conversations and time spent with them, they'll actually come out the other side of a lot better off than when they got there. And this concept of the holistic person and the development of the whole person, not just the sporting person, I think is something that we could literally talk about for hours, but I know you're busy, and... I just want to finish, if you can talk about two things and maybe a couple of points on each. One is, what do you think uh, the key issues professional athletes need to consider to ensure they are leading balanced lives? And the second part of that work is around ensuring that they identify the steps that they need to take to prepare early. So when the siren sounds, when the music stops, when when the whistle blows, they can transition comfortably, knowing that it will always be a challenge to the next phase of their lives rather than tr- than transitioning from their sport.
1: You understand uh, you know, cr- cricket probably in a way that I don't. I think cricket has some difficulties, more difficulties, particularly at the upper echelons than maybe in Australian football. It's tough for
0: cricketers because they're never here.
1: That's exactly right. They're playing... Basically, all the year round in the northern hemisphere or something they're playing three different forms of the game. the demands on them, i found them as some of the most i must admit some of the most unbalanced people that I've met in my life and when When things happen and they not it's not a, a smooth pathway for them, they have more difficulty than most in coping with it so i i think we've got the two two elements we've got and I, I think they're both aware how aware and how effective they've been. That is, the governing body of Australian football, I think the Research Board, in my case with the AFL, is now starting to have some impact on the thinking of administrators where they understand the kind of conversation that you and I are having is is a real thing. This is something that we've got to deal with and do better than we're doing. I think we've reached that point. Uh, Richard Goy, the new um, Commission Chairman, has had conversations with a lot of people, including me, about these issues that no-one, including Mike Fitzpatrick and people that I've known uh, in those positions have even bothered to think about or taken on and think it's their, um, what's the word, their responsibility to do something about that. So I think from the AFL itself there's a change happening. Well, that's a good thing. Uh, that, well, that, I, I think it's a good thing too. And the second thing is that the, the union now, the Players Association, are employing people and doing the kind of research we talked about before which says we are we are fair income and really concerned about the issues that you and I've talked about and we're going to force we're going to force things to happen and uh, I think the fact that we now got player development uh, managers or welfare managers in in the clubs that have been doing well, I think that word, as you suggested, has got round is being adopted. So clubs are who are and, and who is the right person to be doing that job. It's not a an easy task in that kind of environment to have someone who's removed from the the football playing and the performance size to look after them as people. That's almost an interference with the routine and, and programme which is being uh, And that's the
0: mentality that they've just got to, yep. they've got to leave. They've got to yep. leave that alone and just let them get on with other parts of their lives.
1: And, 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 I, and I think as there are more examples of it happening where people do it successfully, and we know there are now in almost every club now, three or four or five or six people, which we might have had one or two back in, in the past, we've got a good strong group of people who are committing their lives to something other than football and playing great footy and that's becoming obvious to their teammates who are there and the people who are administrating that football club. So I think we've we've turned, in my humble opinion, we've turned the corner just, and I think we'll see no avalanche. It's not going to happen like a tidal wave. That's certainly never going to happen, but we're going to see efforts made while the relationship between balance during and balance for transition going out becomes more evident and people do it and do it successfully and clubs will say well we we need to make the kind of financial and people commitment to it that we probably have been loath to do in the past.
0: Now you make a good point to finish David and I think the thing is is that the ability for people to identify early what they want to do and make it very simple as they possibly can to, to move away from one thing into another is is only going to be a good thing for sport, only going to be a good thing for society I oh, thank you very much for your time and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, sir.